Hello and welcome to the Sigilant Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Neil Weitzel, joined today with Jacob Cardinal and Mike Napolitano. Hey guys. Hey, hey Neil, how, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, so we wanted to start this podcast with some industry news. Uh, anyone been watching the Olympics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we saw that the uh, American woman took the gold last night uh, for the Woo! first time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big round of them. In shootout, right? With yeah, Canada? yeah. Great game. If you guys stayed up for it, uh, it went to like two a.m. Um, <laughs> I didn't because I had a rugby game and I was exhausted. But oh well. Um, but yeah, one of the bigger things to come out of Olympics from a security standpoint was the uh, hack that happened during the opening ceremony, um, and it caused a lot of disruption to reporters on the scene. Um, clearly was something to try to disrupt the coverage um, and cause maybe a bit of embarrassment to the Olympic Committee. Um, basically, the way the uh, hack happened was there was a unknown vector in probably a phishing, um, as it always is, but the main piece of the malware was uh, destroying the shadow copies um, and deleting a WB admin as to um, make it as disruptive as possible to recover any systems um, and then from there it used P, uh, PS exec to laterally move through the network um, and try to infect other machines um, and it caused a significant amount of damage to the reporters on scene it brought down the live file for a while brought down the website for a while so spectators were unable to print their tickets um, and it, it really did uh, impact the opening ceremonies to the point where they had to say there was technical difficulties um, so it was successful, essentially. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely successful. Um, Shout out to uh, Talos, by the way, for the great blog they ran up. But one of the things I think was uh, super interesting about this specific attack is uh, when they were analyzing the malware, there were host names and uh, credentials that were hard-coded in, which is a big signifier that um, this attacker likely was uh, a, either yeah. an insider or was just able to collect uh, information ahead of time about how the Olympics committee saw the network was set up, so very interesting, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so, do you think they've recovered? Yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, do you think the closing ceremonies will go off without a hitch? <laughs> we can only hope, right? Um, so hopefully they're not still loitering around in there. I'm sure this was a quite a bit of a wake-up call for them, so I'm sure things are still on yeah. high alert. They said they were fully recovered within 12 hours of... of Discovery, so let's just hope they change all the passwords, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and machine names. Yeah, those, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that should didn't that remind you of a particular one that you had read this week as well, Jake? Yeah, so um, recently, um, the CERT EU put out a white paper for lateral movements. Now, this paper was focused on Windows 7, I believe, um, and it was really limited to the use of pass the hash with NTLM or the Kerberos protocols. So um, this is a great piece, I think, that was put out by them, specifically as um, the industry moves towards more of an assumed breach mindset, with the thing is, like, you know, it's very hard to, like, ever have everything unlocked. We're not going to be able to just create a wall to keep attackers out. Most likely, there's going to be a way that they're able to sneak their way in. Yeah, or even if, like, you know, you have to have time to pass, test things out, things like that. Yeah, I, I definitely see the industry moving more toward this idea of, you know, we have to monitor as well as continually patch and work in, you know, fixing the software. Exactly, and um, I think that's why it's critical that they were able to get out a piece um, focusing exclusively on lateral movements, which is always going to be a large part of many attacks life cycles. Um, so within it, they're focusing on looking at some of the Windows event codes um, that are produced when 
there would be some lateral movement. Um, now this is often uh, event code such as 4648, I believe is one of the ones listed. Um, this is generated when a, someone is requesting a Kerberos ticket. Um, if you combine this with the context of a successful logon and then another machine, um, and then this is also an important bit, is having contextual knowledge of your own network. Um, realizing that this machine is not one that's really meant to connect to others, um, or like having that segregation and realizing something anomalous is going on. Um, those are the events you need to key in on to be able to say, hey, you know, this is incredibly suspicious. We should investigate it. There may be someone trying to laterally move throughout our network. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting point. So you really have to kind of understand what normal activity is in order to be able to detect some of those anomalies because, you know, if somebody's able to, you know, infiltrate or gain some sort of access to a machine and therefore, like, credentials perhaps, you know, it might look like this is legitimate activity, but just because, you know, node A now connects to node B, maybe that never happens regularly, but they got something. So, you know, that, that could be, you know, something that is nefarious, but it just never happens. So we have to, that's really interesting because, you know, the lateral movement definitely is what we need to be looking for as people pivot around networks in terms of attacks, but we also have to be able to kind of identify what is normal activity so we can find those things. That's, that's pretty yeah. cool. That is uh, one of the things I do wish they went slightly more in depth of in the paper, but I think it was just out of scope for them. Um, but uh, no, they made a very key and great point is the tighter you have your controls on your network, the much, you'll be much better in a much better position to understand what's anomalous activity. So yeah. 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 And I mean, I think that's a great, uh, great segue, like talk about like machine learning. Um, that's like kind of like a huge buzzword. I feel like everyone says it and like, you say it as a startup and people just throw money at you, but like, I feel like this is a place where machine learning could definitely have a huge impact on security. Um, and if we can kind of normalize normal behavior and then very quickly see anomalous activity uh, through like machine learning models, um, that would be like a big step forward uh, to securing um, these kind of networks. Yeah, and it would enhance monitoring yeah. capabilities like overall for sure. Yeah, true anomaly detection because if we have that idea of what is normal, we can yes. see like, oh, this is absolutely abnormal and that can trigger that investigation. I mean, it may be legitimate that now somebody had to pivot from this machine to this machine for patching purposes or maintenance purposes, but at least it triggers that, uh, you know, that investigation and you're not as, as inundated with, you know, multiple things to look at. You can kind of pick out the, you know, the things that look the most nefarious or the most uh, uh, probable of an a, a indicator of an attack and go from there. What else did uh, we learn from the news? All right, so uh, next up, uh, I just wanted to talk more about uh, Google Chrome. Uh, they're officially announcing their sort of planned schedule in terms of SSL and notifications about SSL within their browser. Um, specifically, um, they have this idea sort of like thresholding um, and that what they mean by that is that there's a certain percentage of sites on the internet that are using TLS or SSL or some sort of certificate slash encryption. Um, what they're planning to do is um, when it's around 65%, they wish to mark all sites that aren't using HTTPS as um, dubious. When it's 75%. Yeah, I know. It's a little funny. Their wording, though, not mine. Um, around 75%, they announced that that's when they're going to mark those sites as insecure. Um, and when it reaches 85%, um, they're going to remove HTTPS as secure altogether, 
Um, and it's just that way it's going to bring focus to the insecure sites. Um, I think that was related to a piece they mentioned more to do with psychology about how um, bringing attention to secure things is not going to be as effective as bringing attention to the insecure things. So, Stay away, um, bad area, danger zone. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that I think it's a good move, um, and I think it's laudable for um, Chrome to or Google rather to sort of be pushing the technology uh, culture into a more secure area. It's interesting. Do you do they? I don't know if they mention this uh, or you know, do you or kind of your thoughts on this. Do you think that over time, perhaps they'll even move that further into kind of uh, what are the secure cipher suites or what is like uh, the the proper uh, kind of certificate to be issued in certain areas? Yeah, I know. Um, this is a great point. So um, Chrome sort of been like had or Google. <laughs> I can't want to call it Chrome, but Google certified a um, same company. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they've been sort of pushing it for this, I'd say, so 2014. Um, they're walking a fine balance, I would say, between you know trying to push for change, but also making sure it's not too disruptive, right? You have a lot of guys out there maybe hosting their own websites, you know, they want to be secure, um, but for a long time, certs weren't free. Um, it was only rather recently when Cloudflare, Cloudflare and other providers started offering these uh, free certificates for like companies that they could use. Um, so yeah, I think, Ideally, like once they finish with this part of the rollout, they will start pushing for, hey, you need to make sure that it's this version of TLS. So yeah, like one, make sure you're using one dot two, not using CVC ciphers. Exactly, stuff like, that. Yeah, yeah. stuff like that. But you know, you have to. I think they have to. They realize they can only take one thing. Small at step time. at a time. Yeah, I just yeah. That, yeah. I think that that's actually a really good point. You know, as, as long as we can keep moving people in that right direction, you know, we're kind of raising the floor and keeping people moving more towards a secure internet. Um, that does remind me, though, of another article that I read this week on the Microsoft Edge uh, exploit that got disclosed by Google. I don't know if you, either of you guys read that, but essentially, Microsoft Edge uses a just-in-time compiler uh, when it's rendering some of its uh, web content. And what it will do is uh, allocate, but not actually assign that memory to uh, particular areas. So you could effectively use some other just-in-time compiled code, and once it gets called and it makes an actual call to that area, you could you know, potentially have nefarious code kind of running. Um, so it's a really interesting vulnerability in the sense that it's gonna take Microsoft a little bit of work to patch this, and Google definitely disclosed this within their policy, um, which is like this weird 90-day release policy that say that we're going to notify of particular vulnerabilities or bugs that we notify that we find in software and you have 90 days to fix it and then we're going to go public with it regardless now they have had some wiggle room with it in this one as well where they said all right well in microsoft's case we're going to say that we're going to give you 14 extra days to make it to your like typical patch tuesday release um, but it's kind of an interesting area to talk about in terms of you know, what is good standard disclosure? Should they wait until a release is out? Or should we make the public kind of known of these particular flaws and vulnerabilities so that they stay away from it? You know, because we may not be sure of who has already weaponized this or who is actually kind of like leveraging attacks against these vulnerabilities. So it's kind of a weird, you know, area in terms of uh, what is best practice. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a... It's an area where you're not going to get a definitive answer. Personally, I would have liked to maybe see them give Microsoft a little bit of time, but I think within the site, Microsoft still doesn't have a necessary um, date where they can complete this patch for. Um, and as a result, maybe that was what you know pushed Google to say, "All right, you know, that's like, a fair th point. This is the time for um, the people to be aware that there there is this vulnerability." Um, 
But yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you in the article they they essentially said um, they still don't know exactly when they're going to release the patch or if they're you know they just ended up being you know more cumbersome than they originally had anticipated. So maybe if they had a timeline or something like that, that would have been you know easier for Google not to you know go public with it immediately. But you, know, you can think in the terms of and I, I go back to this one because it was so recent, like in the realm of Spectra and Meltdown. You know they had six months on all of those, but you know that's where this kind of becomes some you know gray area because that also affected you know every Android device and uh, you know pretty much all systems. So maybe it's just like what defines the scope? How do we know when to hold back and when we don't and it's just it's an interesting area to talk about in terms of security research yeah uh in terms of ethics uh something i was reading last week a couple weeks ago got posted on uh our netsec actually on reddit uh, was a tool that a guy developed um called autosploit and the idea behind it was it would use shodan it would leverage shodan and find um vulnerable devices uh, iot devices mostly um, and it would try to automatically apply Metasploit modules against those. Um, and it did this in a very, like, spray way, so you could just find a device and then it could just spray every module it had at it and see what happened. Um, and there was a huge, like, discussion, um, around it. Like, a lot of people were angry that this thing was released, right? Like, it almost is, like, a script kitty thing on steroids, um, which a lot of people saw it as, and, uh, people on, you know, on the... The NetSec Twitters were not happy with it. Um, so yeah, it brings up another dis uh, interesting discussion, like should this tool even be released in the first place? Is it raising the floor for security? And if so, is it worth harming the users uh, and potential data for those users where you know the people aren't being responsible and they're not raising their floor? I don't know, like what do you guys think about that? It's interesting because I remember when Metasploit first came out, it was the exact same type of discussion. So like how frequently do we put out modules? Um, you know, do we disclose certain things about them earlier? Um, and then, you know, essentially you're weaponizing, you know, the script kitties. You're saying like, you know, here's, you know, the weaponry, go go forth and find the vulnerables, <laughs> vulnerable software and systems, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense of, are we raising the floor and the ability for, um, like, all right, you need to actually take security seriously and, you know, let's actually go ahead and do that, you know, and find all the vulnerable uh, systems or are we just kind of making it easier for people to exploit things? And, you know, this is this is where we always go around, you know, the bend on this because, you know, we can talk about that in the sense of like, uh, you know, as easy as like the Vault 7 releases and things like that, like, how are they holding on to this and should they disclose that to the public so that, you know, we're not getting uh, breached and things like that? Or should they be using them for city-state weaponry as well? So it, it, it's a really interesting area in the realm of, uh, uh, you know, security research to, to discuss. And everyone has, like, their two cents to weigh in on it and, like, where they sit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I were to take a stand, like, for this one, this isn't um, a piece of code that's really introducing anything complicated or um, anything new. It's just making it much, much more easier for um, people who don't have the technical expertise uh, to take a potentially malicious software. Like Metasploit definitely has its legitimate uses, but in this case, it's going after vulnerable things. It's, um, it's practically giving them the gun and also like pressing the trigger for them. Uh, yeah. So for me, I think this, this one's the one that steps over the line. Yeah, I would actually agree with you there. And the reason why, I, you know, my, my 
where I agree with you is that anytime you're going to perform some penetration test or security testing, you should have permission to do it before you do it. Otherwise, you, in, you know, in my opinion, you're kind of overstepping the bounds. Um, now, that's when you're going like in targeting systems like like this is through Shodan and public facing things. Like I know that there are definite security researchers who you know tear apart software, tear apart certain systems, and try to find vulnerabilities in like uh, you know pieces of software that are in their sandbox environments or on their own machines. And I kind of feel like how do we define where those where one one of those areas starts, the next one stops? Because I think it's like well, you're affecting production user data. Um, people who uh, you know are, are end users versus like I'm doing this to harden the software and give it back to the community or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to to that point, like you have to think about the kind of people that would end up using a tool like this, right? Like you would imagine they're kind of not like immature in the sense of like they're kids, but they're immature in the sense of their understanding of the security community. Um, well, and, I mean, think about it. Perhaps like I hire you as a pen tester to do like an internal audit here. Right. Sure. So maybe like we use that same kind of methodology to just do a quick scan of. Oh everything. yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I, well. I'm definitely to, like like you guys said. Like it definitely has its legitimate uses, but I think like to a degree there are people that are gonna like pick this up and not oh, yeah. have any <laughs> intention of ethical disclosure at all. They're just they're not gonna disclose anything. They're gonna, they're gonna you know pull the trigger. yeah exactly. They're just gonna steal as much as they can and get out. And I mean they would probably. End up getting caught because they don't really yeah, know what they're that doing. Yeah, that was something. That was one thing too. Is yeah, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty obvious to like anyone who like would use that script or like has a technical understanding. Uh, if you're pinging out to that many things, I mean, you would probably you're gonna be seen for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, interesting topic there. Um, so the next part of this podcast, we were gonna talk about some projects and such that we've been working on here at Sigilent. Uh, Nap, what have you been working on? Yeah, so one thing we were trying to do recently was uh, write more and, and enhance our alert library for the Malwarebytes uh, software, and the way we've been kind of doing that internally was using it, leveraging our lab that we've set up, um, and co collecting the logs uh, that get spit out by um, Malwarebytes, and kind of seeing what kind of things we can alert on. You know, we have our normal model, but what kind of things can we normalize from those logs? Um, to write really good alerts on the stuff that Malwarebytes is picking up. Yeah, well, the part that you like the most is the ability to be able to attack a lab, I bet. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so you know, from a, from a, like a, a testing standpoint, being able to just uh, throw things at this lab, you know, no consequences, of course, but um, seeing what happens, seeing what gets picked up, seeing what doesn't get picked up, perhaps, um, is also just as valuable. What um, messages are actually worthwhile and yep. what ones, like... All right, well, we can just scrap this. Yeah. Um, so the, the differentiating between legitimate attacks again, kind of reducing that noise and inundation is a constant, um, constant struggle um, in our in our what we do at Sigilent. So it's it's uh, it's been interesting so far. Um, we're going to continue working on that and, and enhancing that library. Um, cool. And yeah. So yeah, I mean, I've also been uh, working with the lab a lot lately. Um, Personally, my focus has been, for now, um, Windows authentication. Specifically, um, I've been trying to refine like um, the different alerts we have when there's a bunch of authentication failures. Um, and to this point, um, right now, we're really um, we're utilizing the event codes that Windows throws out for film logins. Um, but another area that should be looked at, and I currently am, is the Windows status codes 
um, what do they correlate to in terms of like, hey, this could be a brute force, but if we address the alert in another way, we can use it for password spraying, which wouldn't get picked up by a brute force alert, but still is nonetheless a very, uh, it's a valid attack that's used. Um, so I've been, again, <laughs> like uh, Mike was saying earlier, just trying to enhance the library, but I'm grateful to have the lab to just be able to go at it away and uh, no consequences. Yeah, and I mean, Another thing we were struggling with um, was um, we were trying to think about privilege escalation attacks. Um, and, you know, J Jake, I think last week was uh, looking into it and he was just like, man, I wish there was just like a list of the status codes that Windows puts out and we can just look at it directly. And we were looking and there's really not a great list out there. And it was there's something like that we showed. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a little one and it was on like an obscure forum. And it's like, ah, oh, do we really trust this? So that's why we kind of had to like go to the lab, um, figure out what's actually there. Um, one, of, one of the sources we did on using was like the SDK source code, um, which is pretty funny. But, you know, we were thinking about maybe compiling what we find um, and releasing it back out to people who would find that kind of stuff useful. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you ever solve that one with regard to kind of differentiating between like an escalated user on a Windows node versus like a non-privileged user? So currently with Windows, no. Um, so like honestly, <laughs> anyone, yeah, yeah, anyone listening to the podcast, like, I mean, I'm still relatively new to the security research field and I don't mind admitting that. So if you, you have a valid way, like, please let us know. But um, right now it's really like having understanding of clients networks um being able to know what are, what are your uh, administrative accounts or like picking up when a new administrative account is created um and we can track it that way but it, it's not like linux where like it's just a piece of a log already where we can be like oh this account is um this account is an account with administrative authority it's more critical that we really keep an eye on, out on these ones you know yeah i know that like when we have to write alerts for a lot of our clients we end up saying well what do you call your administrative accounts or what accounts are administrators and you know i just comb through them and you see various ones that are called admin or administrator and you know if they change that or something like that we might miss some sort of event that should be kind of have a higher criticality in terms of its priority level and investigation um, versus, uh, you know, something that could be a normal user. And, you know, best practice would say, like, you shouldn't call it administrator. I mean, like, you know, I, I remember previously at another uh, you know, job that I worked at, we called the administrator accounts Andy and the guest accounts Gabe, you know, A and G. You know, so it, it made it really easy to, to kind of differentiate and find certain ones there. But, like, you know, that's just kind of best practice. And if someone changes those, it can be really difficult to notify on those. And, we don't have the right status codes, which you know, I know we've been combing through that for a little while there, and the SDK wasn't exorbitantly helpful at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they, they had the list of them, NTIers. I mean, the, the status codes are definitely useful for understanding the different types of authentication attacks that can happen. Yeah. I mean, um, also, like, I think I filtered out some of them to really, while that could be an indicator of attack, it's much more likely uh, misconfiguration. Yeah. I think uh, one of the ones I really liked was um, one of the status codes ending with an E. Yeah, that's super helpful, I know. <laughs> but um, it was just, you know, user uh, credentials are correct, but for whatever reason, um, they still aren't allowed to log in. Most of the time, this is your geo-locking or um, some configuration around the time of day. So, um, you know, little things like that. Can... Yeah, it definitely was helpful in the sense of like being able to 
you know, spread out some of the alerts and kind of say that okay, these this classification or these status codes are probably you know more minimal or low level. Some of these are going to be medium, but we're you know that's the the blind area right now is like normal or medium level to that critical administrator account. So we'll continue to research that, and if we find something, it might be a future blog post or you know we'll, we'll revisit it on the pod. Um, <laughs> by the way, I saw you tweeting out uh, earlier this week that your internet was down. Uh, I can empathize because the similar situation for me with the same ISP, I ended up having to buy like a whole new router and like reconfigure my whole home network to make that work. It, it was, you know, it, it sent me down the project rabbit hole of, you know, all right, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just set this up once, set it up right. So now I got like my whole like at home VPN set up and all that jazz. So it's pretty cool. How did that end up for you? All right. So <laughs> I will say I'll, I'll cut the ISP a little slack this time around. Um, tweeting at them the support was pretty responsive so i'll give them that another thing is this incident wasn't really their fault it oh was yeah a third party construction um digging a little doing a little digging and one of the lines was cut so oopsies all right we'll, we'll, we'll give them slack there right that, that one we can't pin on them. redundancy failover <laughs> <laughs> um they were able to fix it by the next morning so it wasn't too too long without the internet but as a result i did end up doing some reading instead so you know something productive came out of it um actually you read a book that you uh recommended a little bit ago uh little brother oh, easy yeah. read yeah very easy read finished it in the night um i think it's only around like 170 something pages it's free online which is even better right so um very easily accessible um you know, the plot sort of revolves around a kid in the counterculture area, quite a bit of a hacker, you know, he's building some incredible things, um, but it's also more about mass surveillance of the state, sort of like the title implies, you got Big Brother, right? This time it's the little guys fighting back. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend it as a read. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed that book as well, and it's why I recommended it, and it kind of got me really hyped up about kind of learning about particular things of, you know, data uh, monitoring, secrecy, uh, privacy, and this kind of security in general. Would recommend Goodread. Uh, Mike, you should still check that one out. Yeah, I haven't gone to it yet, but <laughs> it's on my list. Well, I know you, you've been having to smash it rugby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the last thing we wanted to talk about before we close out the pod was uh, talk about some of the things that happened in the past. We'll call it like the Wayback Area. And this is kind of an area where we were going to visit some of the attacks of, you know, yesteryears or yesterday. And so this time we are going to talk about Heartbleed. Um, particularly Heartbleed uh, was a vulnerability in OpenSSL. And what this effectively did um, is that OpenSSL is kind of used all over the internet. You know, it's probably one of the, it is the largest leveraged, uh, you know, secure socket layer mechanism to kind of create connections and uh, perform authentication mechanisms between applications, nodes, things of that nature. Um, but there's a uh, technical uh, ability within this uh, kind of piece of software that allows like node A and node B to kind of send a heartbeat back and forth between one another to say like, hey, I'm still here, keep my connection alive, um, I'll be back later. E even when like there's not like really active connections between the two. And so what will happen is like it'll say, you know, there's essentially two parts to this packet. And the first one's like, hey, heartbeat, here I am. And the second one says, hey, it's this, my packet's this big, please reply back with, you know, something similar. So, you know, if the packet size is different from what you actually put in like that actual data value. So let's say like I say that my packet size is like, 
you know, 65,000 KB or something like that, and then, like, I really only make my cat pack at, like, you know, 1 KB or something like that, then it's going to come back and it'll shoot back more, more than what it actually got in that, you know, in your uh, send packet, right? So a lot of times what this happens is it'll send back a lot of memory um, from the machine. You don't really know what's going to be there. This is volatile. Um, it could be things like, you know, encryption keys, passwords. Uh, Cracking open a pinata and yeah. sort of seeing what you get, you know? <laughs> so yeah, and, and what made it so interesting is that like when folks kind of found this uh, vulnerability, it's like, oh my goodness, this has been around for years. And so we're like unsure of like how long it had been around, how many people had, you know, been affected by this. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things too, right, is, um, you know, some, some vulnerabilities are like maybe discovered due to like a huge breach of some sort. Um, was this the case with Harpley though? Uh, no, I, ironically, like I, I don't recall like any big, you know, like, like headline level, like Equifax or like the target breach or things of that nature that like shook out of this. Like, I think it was, you know, more or less like an, oh my goodness, people that like, we see this in terms, like in the same sense of like Spectra and Meltdown, right? Like we saw, we heard more about the vulnerability itself than we did actually like a particular attack. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like in fairness though, like this, this vulnerability is uh, about three, four years old now. <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, th we've seen stuff get exploited decades after patches are released, right? And I mean, uh, showed in on the report for 2017, found out there were still around 200,000 websites where this was uh, a vulnerability on that website. Oh, um, so it is definitely something like to keep on the radar as, as possible. Um, obviously, we would hope that it's unlikely, but it, it's still something that could happen. Um, hopefully, all the major companies and people that have sensitive data have dealt with it by now. Um, we would hope. Patch your system. Patch your, patch your systems, of course. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's, you know, we, we've seen way older things get exploited, so it's not without outside the realm of possibility. Yeah, you know, make sure that you're using secure socket layer, uh, you know, up-to-date protocols, TLS 1.2. Um, stay away from insecure ciphers that have known vulnerabilities in them. You know, all modern browsers support the, you know, the, the most latest and greatest, so, you know, go out there and push that, you know, be the change that we need <laughs> on the internet. Secure the tubes. Um, well, anything else you guys want to add? I think that's all for me. Yeah, no, I'm good. Brilliant. Well, hey, thanks everyone for joining us on this Sigilant Cybersecurity Podcast. We'll join you next time.